Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. I am going to be tackling one of the questions that was sent in, and uh, the, the question this morning is, why is God taking so long? Uh, before we get to that, I have to be a good son-in-law, and it's my mother-in-law's birthday today, so happy birthday, Lorene. We can all give a clap. We won't sing because I would embarrass her too much, but happy birthday. Um, all right, let's, let's just pray before we get into this, shall we? God, and I'm so grateful uh, that we get to be together this morning. And Lord, this is a, this is a tough question, and I think it's one that we all either struggle with or have to deal with in the span of our lives, um, some more than others, and maybe some of us are going through it right now. Because uh, time and, and, and patience and longing, those are tough things to sit through, Lord. And so this morning, if we're in that space, I pray that um, you'd speak through this and speak to us. And uh, if we have wisdom to share on that, we're out of that space. God, I pray that you would just uh, put it on our hearts to be able to share that with someone in this room. Bring us closer this morning. Amen. So uh, if you know me, you know I have attention deficit disorder, which is ADD. And that's not like the 2016, like they just sort of dole it out, ADD. Like I'm like not even here right now, ADD. <laughs> so I have, I have really, really bad ADD. And uh, it's like if we go to a restaurant, like my wife and I will be sitting in like, especially those restaurants in LA where you've got a table right here and then a table like right here. If people sit at this table, like I'm, I'm checked out, I'm gone. Like, so I have to basically apologize to Chelsea and say like, sorry, my eavesdropping is not intentional but it is unstoppable, and I will not be with you for the rest of the meal. Um, but it's also been like a struggle. Like I've had, I, like growing up in, in high school and elementary school and in middle school, I had like a really tough time getting through school uh, because my ADD was so bad. So I just had, had to take like extra long on tests and reading assignments were really difficult for me. But I've learned to kind of curve all of that as an adult, um, and it's actually become sort of an advantage to me. I like doing multiple things at once, and I love multitasking and stuff like that. But the one thing that I have not been able to cure, as uh, much as ADD is about attention, ADD is also about patience. And my impatience is still off the charts. Um, and I think that's true for a lot of us. Like, if we're in traffic, it triggers that impatience. If we're waiting for a plane to take off, it triggers that impatience. But at the core of that is really an absolute lack of control. So what we can't control makes us infuriated and causes impatience, right? And we're, we're not alone in this, and it's getting worse for Americans in general. Let's look at this, um, uh, this quote from Forbes.com that I found. And this has to do with uh, millennials specifically, but in the sort of span of, of someone's working life. So it says, the average worker today stays at each of his or her jobs for 4.4 years, according to the most recent available data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. But the expected tenure of the workforce's youngest employees is about half of that. 91% of millennials born 1977 through 1997 expect to stay in a job for less than three years, according to the Future Workspace Multiple Generations at Work survey of 1,189 employees and 150 managers. That means they would have worked 15 to 20 jobs over the course of their lives. So it has to do with our careers. It also has to do with the instant gratification that our cell phones have brought along. Like We can order any food that we want right when we want it. We can find the greatest uh, play whenever we want it or movie time whenever we want it. So if it's not something we can solve by switching jobs, if it's not something we can solve by a simple Google search, there's other stuff that impatience is actually good for. And it's not really impatience, but it's this, this thing called longing. And longing is not a bad thing. And it's not the opposite of impatience. It's actually 
It's actually the, the affirmation of it. It's the in-between that we have to sit in. Psalm 143.6 says, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul longs for you as a parched land. Literally like half the Psalms are about this idea of longing. Longing for God. Longing for wisdom. Longing for something to be fulfilled. So there seems to be an affirmation of this emotion in the scripture. It's actually a good thing. It's where God kind of works us. It also, longing leads us to justify risk. And risk is sort of the agent that moves our, our lives onward. So if we don't long, then we're not willing to take that plunge when that risk comes up. So let's look at how God deals with our longing. And there's this awesome word, and I'm obsessed with fun words uh, in Hebrew in the scriptures, and there's this awesome word that I found this week when dealing with this, and it's called chesed. And say that in your best, like, rabbi voice with me. Ready? Chesed. That wasn't hearty enough. Let's try that one more time. Chesed. Yes. All right. So chesed is one of those Hebrew words that English just does not do justice. The Hebrew language is a lot smaller than ours, and so the words pack a punch that's just like, like way bigger than an English word possibly could. So if we translate chesed like literally, it means lifelong love, or, uh, sorry, where's the other definition, or even uh, loyal love. So that's like the direct English definition, but that really doesn't do it justice. Chesed is the word that's used when God uh, says that he loves his people, says that he loves the Israelites. It's also a word for kindness. So when you read kindness in the scripture, chances are it's going to be this word, hased. So hased is this urgent, lifelong love that God has for us. So there's our longing, there's our need to be provided for, and then there's God's hased, which is God's loyal love, God's lifetime love. So the best book in the Bible, and it's an odd one, it's called Ruth, um, that sort of sums up this idea of chesed, is sandwiched in between uh, Judges and 1 Samuel. It's only four chapters long, but it's like this really beautiful story. Um, and so I want to kind of sum it up for us this morning. If you want to, on your phones, um, you can look up. It's going to be on the screen as well. I'm going to actually read Ruth uh, 1, 6 through 19, but uh, that'll, that'll be in a minute because I'm just going to sum it up for us. So, uh, the book of Ruth opens up on this uh, lady named Naomi. And Naomi is married, and she's, she lives in Judah. She's an Israelite. And then famine hits Israel, and so Naomi and her husband have to go and move to where there's food. But they move to kind of an odd place, and that place is called Moab. And the reason that that's weird, and the reason that's odd, and the reason that's so important is because the Moabites and the Israelites had a lot of tension going on. So it's like us right now going like, oh, there's, like, there's a drought going on. I'll move to Syria. Like, it's, not like the, it's not the greatest place to go. And what's really odd about that is because Ruth is a story, and it's a part of this larger story that is the Old Testament. So if we go back a couple books to the book of Genesis, we find this guy named Abraham. And God tells this guy, Abraham, I'm going to make this amazing nation out of you. I'm going to make this incredible nation. And you're not going to be known like other big nations are going to be known for their power and their might. You're going to be known for how you follow me and how I love you. You're going to be an example of my love. That happens in Genesis 12, and then in Genesis 13, one chapter later, Abraham has a nephew named Lot, and tension begins to arise between the two, and they go, you know what, before this gets really big and huge, let's just split. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And so Lot has a son named Moab, Moab, and they become the Moabite tribe, 
so th there's a common ancestor. So it's like looking at someone who looks exactly like you and going like, hate that guy. But they're, they're, they're really closely connected. There's also an incredible amount of tension. So they move to Moab. And things appear to be looking up uh, in terms of being in a foreign land and being a foreigner there. Uh, they have two sons together. And those two sons end up marrying Moabite women. And those names are Orpah and Ruth. And try typing Orpah in all week long, because it changed it to Oprah so many times. Um, but it's Orpah. And if I say Oprah by accident, that's just because I've been like, ah. um, But they marry these two uh, Moabite women. But things seem to be going OK. And then Naomi's husband passes away. And then about 10 years go by, and then both of her sons pass away. And this is all in the first six verses of this book. So the Bible kind of very casually breezes by this death and is like, oh, this happened, like these two people died, this other person died. But if we sit in that tragedy for a little while, if we sit in that like hurt for just a minute, because they moved, had to pick up, finally life is going well, and then life just smacks them down again. We're left with three widows, and in this point in culture, to be a widow is hard enough. To have to take care of two other widows, as Naomi would have had to have done, is just brutal. So Naomi decides that uh, she's going to go back to Israel because she's heard that the famine is over, and she's also, uh, she knows that if there are relatives there, they might take care of her. So at first, uh, Naomi and Ruth follow her, and that's where we're going to read uh, this scripture this morning. So let's turn to Ruth 1, 6 through 19. We'll pick up the story after this. So when Naomi heard in Moab that the, that the Lord had come to the aid of his people, by providing food for them. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and me. And that kindness word is that chesed word. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud. This is where stuff gets tense. And said to her, no, we will go with you, back with your people. And Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could be your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait till they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, Naomi said, your sister-in-law is going back to her people, and her gods go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. So that, that verse 16 is extremely significant. Uh, both historically and just emotionally. So there's this huge, like, gnashing of teeth, tear fest thing where Naomi, they start on the road together. So they started on this journey, and then Naomi wises up, and she goes, like, wait a minute. What am I doing? I can't take care of these two. 
So she urges them to do the safe thing. Go back home. Go back to your actual mothers. Go back to your family and go find another husband because that would be the safe thing to do. That would be the wise thing to do. So Orpah wises up, and it's really hard for her, but she turns away and she goes back home. Ruth decides, no way, I'm staying. And this is why this is so significant. She takes on a different identity, one that she was actually forbidden to take on. So we have a verse from Deuteronomy 3, or 23 here. Chelsea, can you put that up? <laughs> yes. Beautiful. All right. It says, an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord even to their 10th generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. Therefore, a Moabite, as well as an Ammonite, I don't know what an Ammonite is, but as well as a Moabite, they can't actually convert to Judaism. It's forbidden in the Bible. So there's a book of the Bible that says they're not allowed to do it, and then there's Ruth, a book of the Bible, where she does it anyway. It's pretty, it's pretty radical. So uh, I'll, I'll sum up because I want to really focus on this verse, but let me sum up because you've got to see where the blessing comes in here. You've got to see what God does with this situation. So Ruth risks everything and steps out. It's risky. She doesn't know what's ahead. She's going to be a foreigner. She's a Moabite. The tension's going to be real, real hot when she gets there. They get to uh, Bethlehem where they settle in, and they're forced to live off of this sort of ancient version of welfare. Uh, it was called gleaning. So they could go into the field after the wealthy people had gone through the field. And if the wealthy people in the field were putting things into their sacks and something fell down onto the ground, then they would have to leave it there by, by Jewish law. They'd have to leave it on the ground for the poor then to come through after and to pick that up, as well as the corner of the fields which were left for them. So Ruth decides that she's going to go and uh, glean at this field that's owned by a, a guy named Boaz. And she goes, and she's, she's picking up the scraps, and, and they're living in this tension for a while. The, the scripture isn't specific on how long they're in this period, but we do know that seasons go by. So it's not a short amount of time that they're in this hard, hard spot. So Ruth has risked everything, and now there's this period where it's just like, God, what's taking so long? So she goes to this, uh, to this field, and she's picking up the scraps, and Boaz sees her, and Ruth must have been a pretty uh, good-looking woman because Boaz goes like, who that? <laughs> and Boaz starts asking around, like, who's this Ruth character? I got to know. And they say, oh, that's Ruth the Moabite. She's uh, Naomi's daughter-in-law. And Naomi is a relative of Boaz, which back then made it street legal for them to get married if it actually was going to go down and he was into that and everything like that. So he gets an idea playing in his head and he says, hey, why don't you come to dinner with me? So she eats with Boaz. And this is like, she's like, she's, she's hungry, right? So she's just like filling up filling up and drinking wine and just having a blast. And then he sends her back with like nine sacks of barley, which is this enormous, uh, enormous amount of food. And he sends it back. He says, take this to your mother-in-law because he knows the value of reaching out to a mother-in-law. So uh, he takes this back. And then Naomi goes, where did you get the, these nine sacks of barley? And, and she goes, well, there's this guy, Boaz. I guess he's a relative of yours. And we kind of hit it off. And so mom-in-law hatches a plan right then and there to get them married. So she, she I'll, I'll spare you the details on this just because we've got to keep moving, but the plan is saucy, and you should really read it for yourself. So anyway, they, they, uh, the plan works. Boaz ends up marrying Ruth, and then the most significant part of this book comes in the last line, and it says that they have a child, and that child's name is Obed. And that's not really a big deal to us, but then Obed has this son named Jesse, 
And again, not a really big deal to us, but then Jesse has this son named David. And David is the greatest king that Israel's ever seen. Even more than that, if we trace the genealogy of David, we get down to Jesus. So what is the significance in that? We have, we have the Israelite, the chosen, and we have the Moabite, the outsider. And flowing within the very veins of the Savior that we follow, we get both. It's the Bible's greatest wink to welcoming and accepting everybody. So, what does this have to do with God? What's taking so long? Let's look at the difference between Orpah and Ruth for a second, because uh, I think it's staggering. Orpah, the sister that goes home, listens to her mother-in-law, listens to the authority figure placed in front of her, and also listens to the wisdom of the day. She's thinking like, okay, I've got two options here. I can go into this foreign land I know nothing about. I'll probably be hated there. Or I can go back home and give this whole life thing another shot. It's what I know. It's what's safe. It's the wise choice. But the Bible doesn't follow Orpah's story. And I think that's extremely significant. It just drops off right then and there. And it doesn't say anything bad happened to her. And if I could wager to guess, I'd think that she probably got married again and lived out her days. But that's not the interesting story. The interesting story is the one who steps out into the unknown and risks everything. It's Ruth. It's Ruth because we crave that kind of courage. We crave that kind of story. If you think of your favorite film or your favorite book, the hero in that story is not the one who goes, oh, I'm going to pack it up and go back home. The hero in that story is the one that steps out and does something radical. And we want to see that dip. We want to see Ruth in the field. We want to see that hardship because what we really, really, really crave at the end of the day is redemption. That's what we want to see in our movies. It's what we see in our books. It's what we see in our heroes. And that's what we see with Ruth. We see God redeeming everything. There's another story in the Bible that contains this sort of risk, and it actually sort of continues on the old Oprah, oh gosh, I almost said Oprah, Orpah track. And it's the story in Exodus. Moses, uh, God tells Moses, you need to get my people out of slavery. I'm going to take them to the promised land, and you're going to be the guy who's going to do it. So Moses strolls into Egypt. Big plague thing happens. There's a movie about it. You should watch it. And then they, they get to the desert. So they cross the Reed Sea. They get to the desert. And then this interesting thing happens. They've trusted God so far. They've trusted him to get them out of slavery and into this new land. But the, the promised land, when they get there, they send some scouts in. And there's a little bummer here because there's a bunch of really big warrior people who are inhabiting that land. And the scouts come back and they go, guys, there's, there's just no way we can do this. And so... Israel as a nation looks at each other and kind of goes, you know what, Let's, the, the desert seems nice. Let's stay here. They choose the safe option. And what's really scary about choosing the safe option is that if we do, God will often let us do it because they stayed in that desert for 40 years. In fact, they stayed for a generation. So until every one of those Israelites had died out, they weren't ready to go into the promised land. Richard Rohr, who's a, um, a Franciscan priest, wrote this really awesome book about the two halves of life. Uh, and it, it, it's called Falling Upward. And it's basically like he, he frames it like the first part of your life should be building structures, learning things, you know, sort of building out your life. And he, he uses a metaphor, and it's a container. So you're building your container. And then the second half of life, he argues, should be all about filling that container up. 
So you've built the structure, you've built the container, and in the second half of life, you should be filling that container up. This quote is devastating and very interesting. Let's, let's bring this up. So many people are depressed. Many depressed people are people who have never taken any risks, never moved outside their comfort zone, never faced necessary suffering. And so their unconscious knows that, and they have never lived or loved. Their unconscious knows that they have never lived or loved. You see, if we don't risk, there really isn't much chance for reward. If we don't risk, there's really not much chance to see God really do his thing. I was in a rough uh, job spot in a period of my life, and someone took me out to lunch. Uh, it was someone much older than I and a, a sort of a mentor. And they're like, so you're sort of in flux right now. And I was like, yeah. And they looked me in the eye, sort of shook my hand, and then just went like, enjoy this time. And I was like, that's a really, really weird and insensitive thing to say. But enjoy this time. And then they said, because this is where we get to see God work. It's in the longing. It's in the tension that we're actually shaped. Chelsea and I got to go on this really, really awesome trip about like three months ago. Uh, we got to go to Napa. And uh, I say we got to go because it was something that we could literally never afford. We went with a friend, and that friend's family member was a wine distributor. And if you don't know what a wine distributor does, it's basically just the best job in the world. Um, they distribute wine. And when you go up to Napa with a wine distributor, they roll out the red carpet for you. So we went to like all these incredible wineries, these amazing views and amazing food that like chefs were preparing for us. We got to eat in like wine caves and it was just ridiculous. It was awesome. Chelsea has a bucket list item, which is to pull wine from an actual barrel and get to try it. And that like happened so she could check that off her bucket list. It was just this ridiculously fun trip. The first winery we went to was called Inglenook. And if you guys know what, does anybody know what Inglenook is? Okay, yeah. So Inglenook used to be the best winery in the world. It's actually one of the oldest wineries uh, in the United States, and especially Napa. And it used to have this reputation as like the greatest wine. And then Prohibition came around, and they started making wine uh, for churches, oddly enough, because that was the only way you could still make wine. So that's how they got themselves through Prohibition. And at the end of Prohibition, they never really changed their recipe up. So they created these like jugs. This was before boxed wine. It was like a jug with a handle. And you can still find it today. Like they're on the bottom shelf. <laughs> like the bottom shelf. It's, not, it's a little classier than the boxed wine, but not quite. So for years, this has been Inglenook. This has been what they've been known for. And actually, they're, having, they're going through this cycle right now where they're having to wait for all of those jugs to be sold in stores before they're going to actually release anything because they want to... They want to distinguish themselves from the jug. They're trying to take themselves from the bottom shelf to the top shelf. And the way that they're doing that is Francis Coppola bought this winery. Francis Coppola paid like millions and millions of dollars to buy the name Inglenook because he wanted to restore it to its original greatness. He bought the oldest winery in Napa so that he could restore it to its greatness because that's what one does when they're Francis Coppola. So, <laughs> We roll into this Inglenook winery, and they've pulled out all the stops. We're getting this awesome tour. There's this guy in a cowboy hat and a great mustache who's showing us around. It's a really fun time. And then we get into this room where there's like these white tablecloths and little glasses, and, and, and we see this tiny little French man in the corner. And the tiny little French man comes up, and he introduces himself. And it turns out that this tiny little French man was the guy that Francis Coppola had picked himself 
to turn this winery around. This is the head winemaker of Engelman. And we do our little tasting. He tells us all about it. I mean, it's very evident this is like a brilliant, brilliant guy. And then after that, they, they have a meal for us prepared. So we go upstairs, and we're sitting down. We're all picking our seats. And I sit down right here. And then the head winemaker sits down right here. And I realize he's kind of in an awkward spot. So the only kind of casual person he can talk to without being really weird is me. And so I'm trapped with the head winemaker of this winery for like an hour. And it's, I, all I can think of is like, please don't talk about wine. Please don't talk about, like, for me, like, don't, don't, you know, don't belittle him. But so we just, we started talking, and then he asked me what I did, and I said that I was involved in this church plant, and we started talking about church planting. And I'm talking with this, this guy who grew up in Bordeaux, France, and he's like this, like, he's one of the best in the world at what he does, and he's asking me questions about what I do. So I flip it around, and I, I start asking him questions about wine, and I asked him, what's it going to take to take Inglenook from that jug to like the best wine in the world, because that was their goal, and they said it over and over again. And he said, good wine takes a couple of things if you want to be the best in the world. And those two things are stress and time. Stress and time. So to get from the bottom shelf to the top shelf, grapes need stress and time. And stress is when uh, grapes are put through various temperatures. So if there's a really hot temperature and then a really cold temperature, and in Napa that happens because the temperature swings, then the, the grapes are put a little stress on, and that builds character in the grape. And time is not the time that's like the most obvious thing that we would think of, like time waiting in a bottle. It's actually uh, time in terms of planning for the vintner and the winemaker and the wine company. So he said, like, like cheap wine companies will plan one season out or two seasons out. And he said, in France, and what I do is I don't plan one season out, one year out, two seasons out, two years out. We plan 50 seasons out. And this isn't a young guy. So to myself, I'm thinking, this guy may never even see the fruits of what he's doing, the fruits of his labor. 50 seasons out. And I thought, what a metaphor that is for us and God's love for us. Because if this winemaker is this good at making wine and is planning 50 seasons out, I'd imagine God is pretty darn good with getting us through life, and he's planning 50 seasons out. Because when we ask the question, God, what's taking so long? We're actually just saying, like, God, I don't, I don't really trust you. I want that one-season plan. I want that two-season plan. I want the jug. I'm seeing this happen for everyone else around me. Why isn't it not happening for me, God? I want this on my time. But that time is where God shapes us, and that time creates space for this thing called redemption. Remember, there's that longing. There's our need to be provided for, and then there's chesed. There's God's great, lifelong, loyal kindness and love that gets us through that. We often want God to be a God who prevents. We want him to be about prevention, but very often we don't really want a God who's all about redemption. Donald Miller is one of my favorite authors, and if you've read his books, they're like Blue Like Jazz and a couple other really great ones, but he runs this conference called Storyline, and uh, it's all about helping people find out what their story is and how to increase their story and how they can tell their story. And he has this awesome uh, quote about risk. He says, whatever your big idea is, whatever your, 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 your life's goal is, the first action in that is, is just to point your toes towards it. 
And I think that's such an awesome metaphor because it's not like take that first step. It just provides you with the littlest, tiniest movement. Just point your toes towards it. And I think for us today, to step out into faith is a big thing, to step out into risk, but to point our toes towards it, to point our toes towards trusting God, that's, a, that's, a, that's an easy and that's a doable thing to do. So I want us to pray. Uh, the band's going to come up. They're going to they're gonna play under us. Um, but let's just bow our heads together, and I want to just take us through a little prayer exercise here. Um, there is there's something that we're feeling sort of like stuck in the desert with. We've been brought out of something, and now it just feels like there's this waiting period. And I just, I just want to um, give like 20 seconds here where we can just kind of think of what that is and how we can point our toes towards God. How we can point our toes towards that risk. So if you just want to uh, just for, take 10, 20 seconds of silence and just kind of pray to God and figure that out. So God, uh, what's, what's so awesome about being able to gather as a church is that we get to acknowledge that we're not just talking about these things, but that you're in this space right now and you're able to help us with this stuff the people around us are able to help us with this stuff. God, I pray we, we lean into that this morning and this week.